So, uh, why don't you just tell us where you got these videotapes from? Just tell us what they are. We bought a video recorder. And that's when I had the first nightmare. I don't think that you know what you're dealing with. Give me that camera. I started seeing these images. I recognized them. Recognize them from where? Wanna tell me what's on this? Is that beta? Yep. Nice. If your god exists, does he require summoning? Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Fresh Cuts. This is Mike. Joining me as always is Mr. Venom. What is up, Venom? Greetings and salutations, Betamax users. Yeah, I am doing pretty well. Not much going on in uh, Venom land right now, but uh, just relaxing, enjoying my October, getting ready for my Halloween night at Disneyland. Otherwise, business as usual. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, I want to get to Disneyland during holiday. I was about to say holiday season, Halloween season. Eventually, it's the one holiday I haven't been there for. Um, but I've heard it's great. I've seen obviously pictures of other people going and stuff. So mm-hmm. one day I'll make it. Uh, <laughs> we just gotta. Yeah, it's more about like the kids with school. You know, if they weren't in school, so maybe sure, maybe when they're older. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah. I'll introduce Don also. What's up, Don? Yeah, what's going on? Always happy to be here. All right. Well, if uh, everyone listening uh, already listened to the When Evil Lurks episode, I mentioned uh, we were doing a bonus episode this week just because there was a ton of releases like in the last week and a half. Honestly, we could have done like six, seven, eight episodes if we tried to do an episode on everything. Uh, but yeah, we don't all have that much free time. Probably none of us do, but, uh, so we kind of picked what we were looking forward to the most, I think. Um, I know with, with Evil Lurks, that's definitely the case, <laughs> but, uh, VHS 85 also released the next chapter in the found footage franchise of VHS. They've been kind of putting them out at a decent pace ever since the first one debuted, uh, I have a feeling this won't be the last one, just because they seem relatively uh, easy to, well, I wouldn't say easy, but, you know, they usually go straight to Shudder, um, and they usually get different different directors to sign on all the time, so uh, the participation and the cooperation in the horror community to get these made seems still a viable thing to do. So uh, I will read the synopsis on the latest one. 
off IMDb, unveiled through a made-for-TV documentary, Five Tales of Found Footage Horror emerged to take viewers on a terrifying journey into the grim underbelly of the 1980s. All right. <laughs> so we will start with general thoughts. Uh, I'm assuming once we get to spoilers and walk through, we'll go through each one. But uh, for the general thoughts, we usually kind of give an overview, uh, like a more general overview. So we'll start with that. Venom, what did you think of VHS 85? Uh, this film is a slight improvement from last year's VHS 99, which I think all three of us weren't real fond of. I know I had a major problem with the fact that a lot of the segments were kind of youth-oriented. They had younger casts. And thankfully, we don't really get that here. Uh, we get, I mean, you know, we, we get some younger people, but not like high school age. You know what I mean? So I'm um, okay with that. Not to, not to say that that in and of itself is what made the last VHS not very good, but it's just some of those segments uh, just didn't really work for me. Um, and with this one, the segments are slightly better. I'm, I'm going to say the triumph of this movie is its wraparound. Like we get we get an actual fleshed out wrap around this time with like a beginning, middle, and end. It's almost like its own segment, and I feel like that's when a horror anthology really you know hits a home run when the wrap around almost becomes its own segment. Think the Mortuary Collection from a uh, from a few years ago. Um, that one you know really masterfully put that together. Same thing with a scare package with the you know the Joe Bob. Um, vehicle uh, where we got part one and part two. Uh, so, yeah, so this one is a slight improvement over last year's VHS 99. In my opinion, it still doesn't come close to the heights of VHS 2 and VHS 94. Uh, just the strength of those segments, um, you know, wraparounds notwithstanding. Because, you know, the wraparound for the first two was, you know, fairly simple, just some home invasion stuff. And then the third movie, Viral, was where the wraparound started getting a little bit more complex and not always to the benefit of the film. But this one I thought worked out for me. Like I said, it just it felt like another segment. And it was it was a fairly enjoyable segment, too. So, I mean, you can kind of look at this film as having had six segments depending on if you're going to count the two-parter as one segment there is a segment in this movie that i'm not really happy with the fact that they split it up into two uh we get i understand why they did it because there's a little bit of a reveal once you understand that it's actually part two of a previous segment in uh in the film and it actually has kind of a cool little uh, guilty pleasure kind of ending that I actually did enjoy for that segment. So, you know, a little bit of revenge. Again, my pettiness and vindictiveness kind of coming out in my cinematic choices. So um, none of the segments really are great. I, I, I can't say great. I could say good. Best is probably the best I could say. Um you know, a couple of really short segments that don't really have much of an arc. They're really more of just a quick scene. And even the first segment, which, you know, ends up uh, getting a, a second part, when it ends, it's almost frustrating. It's like, well, wait a minute, that's the end of the segment. That doesn't make sense. And, and then to bring that segment back later to then complete it, just kind of, I don't know, like I, like at first I wasn't even sure if it was two separate segments or if it was one segment done by one director, and that is the case. It's one segment done by one director. They just split it up into two 
uh, different stories since you can, you know, kind of, I can't really talk in detail about it till we get to the walkthrough, but yeah, I, I'm just going to say I was not the biggest fan of a two-parter uh, in a horror anthology. I want to see each segment beginning to end, unless you're going to do the trick-or-treat style where they're just constantly intersecting with each other and going back and forth between segment to segment. That's acceptable. You know, Tales from Halloween did that. Trick-or-treat did it masterfully. Uh but this this movie, you know, with its two-parter, just didn't really work for me. Overall, no major problem with the performances. Um, the uh, the editing is, you know, it, it's VHS, and because it's set in 1985, you're definitely dealing with a lot more, you know, bad VHS video quality. That is obviously, you know, an effect for the movie. It's not like they actually shot it in VHS. At least I don't think they did. Um, so. You know, being that it's like uh, over a decade before the last two chapters that we got, I don't mean in real time, I mean in movie time. You know, 94 and 99 were the last two, and now we're getting 85. So there's a little bit of a uh, degradation in the quality of the film, a lot more glitches and, you know, audio dropouts and things like that, blah, 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 to be expected, you know, for a movie that's quote-unquote 10 years older, over 10 years older than the last entry that we got. But, yeah, overall, I thought the segments were just kind of underwhelming. Like, all of them had potential, um, but none of them really came through. I think the shortest segment in the movie called Techno God is probably the one that worked the best because there was actually a definitive end, and I like that, whereas a lot of the other segments kind of had an open-ended ending where there there might be more story to tell. Um well, maybe not so much with our final segment too, but like I said, it's a, it, it, it's kind of just a varying degrees of good with this uh, movie. The, the sec- none of the segments are great. None of them really blew me away. Um, that's two films. That's two VHS movies in a row that you know after the master, all, the almost masterpiece that VHS ninety four is. This one just you know. Even though it's a step, half a step better than the last one, it still leaves a lot to be desired. And isn't it funny that the two that I consider great, VHS 2 and VHS 94, both have segments by Timo in there? I'm, I'm thinking this franchise needs Timo more than it needs. So maybe for the next entry we'll get him back because I love Gigi Sal Guerrera. You know, I, I, I like Mike Nelson. I love David Bruckner. Scott Derrickson is a favorite of mine, but nobody really shines in this in this one. Like nobody's direction really shines or gives us any kind of quote unquote classic segment like '94 and VHS two both did. So overall, it's a good movie. It's not great. It's uh, like I said, it's about a half step above '99 for me. Personally. But it still kind of falls in, in kind of in the middle ground. Now what? This is the sixth. Is it the yeah the sixth chapter in the franchise? So we now have six VHS movies, and this one is pretty much just solidly in the middle. 
You know what I mean? Like VHS three, you know, VHS viral and VHS 99 being some of the lesser ones in the franchise. And then this one and VHS one, I would say are kind of middle of the road, maybe leaning towards good. And then of course, VHS two and VHS 94 being just amazing pieces of film. So yeah, like I said, there's varying degrees of quality here. It, It may work for some people more than it works for me. But, yeah, this is definitely one that I don't think I need to come back to. As as much as I love Gigi Saul Guerrero, and I did enjoy her segment. I, I genuinely enjoyed her segment here. Um, I just, you know, feel like as a whole, as a package, this one, you know, maybe still leaves something to be desired for the hardcore fans of this franchise. I, and, and I count myself among those numbers. I've been on board since the very first one. I, Mrs. Venom and I actually watched the first one together and were very surprised at, you know, how legitimately gory and scary it actually was. And then and VHS 2 comes in and ups the ante even more. So this is a franchise that I'll pretty much always stick with. I love found footage. I love horror anthologies. So obviously loving VHS is a no-brainer. But it's just, like I said, the varying degrees of quality that you have to deal with. And and now, of course, with a two-part segment where you're, where when the first part of it, it ends, you're just kind of scratching your head, like incredibly unsatisfied with the with the sequence. But then it does come together in the second part. So, yeah, overall, slightly better than 99, but not one that I'm going to call a classic. So I'll leave my general thoughts with that. All right. Let's keep it. Dom, what did you think of VHS 85? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty close, although I, I think I liked it maybe just a touch more. Um, I, I, I do agree. I, I do think this is uh, in the middle between uh, the recent uh, sh- the Shutter trilogy uh, of the series. Uh, not quite hitting the highs of 94, but better than what we got in 99. Um I, I do agree. I, I do think the decision to split the main section, uh, main segment uh, into the two-parter is a little weird, um, especially since it's a direct continuation and it kind of leaves a lot of uh, the unanswered questions that you get at the end of the first one uh, into the second one. Uh, you, you know, everything gets answered and explained there, which probably would have made it make a little bit more sense. So it it doesn't feel as initially disappointing because you're getting conclusion at a later date. So that just it, it feels a little weird. But yeah, overall, um, I, I did really like it. Um, none of the segments are really standouts. Um, I mean, the uh, serial killer one is probably my favorite, but I still wouldn't call that one like really really good. I mean, it would probably be like middle tier on like one of the other sections uh you know one of the other uh entries in the series that the one that i really didn't like was techno gods i was kind of uh, shocking to hear that you didn't that you like that one the most because that was the one that i felt was uh, the least interesting the one that had the least connection to actually be like a vhs recorded found footage thing because it's always it's the one that jumps around the camera angles the most you know you're getting you know various point of view shots you're getting the uh you know interaction in the uh, what crap, I can't say that because that's the spoiler. Um, I'll just say for me, that one was the one that felt the least uh, likely to the series because it kind of, I, I guess you could say it uh, abuses the rules of found footage to a degree. 
which, um, I, I mean, you know, we can talk about that when we get to the segment at hand, but that, that was the one that really kind of disappointed me the most and really, it didn't feel like it belonged. And then it was one that was, I felt the least interesting. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I can't say that the segments were great, but I, I think the consistency of it, uh, I, I think that kind of was the, the part that wowed me the most with this one. Uh, you know, you're not getting, you know, like a really, you know, bad series of segments one after another or, you know, just middling entries that don't really wow you either way. Uh, you know, they're, they're both, they're, they're all pretty interesting. They all have their merits. Um, it, it took me a while to realize what the wraparound was supposed to be. So, uh, the, the first few, uh, talking head interview segments kind of was like, Oh, okay. So we're done with the segment at hand and we're back to this. So it, it is, uh, you know, slightly jarring until you realize what the uh, trick of it is. So I guess, you know, like the first, the first couple of times it comes back to this stuff, it, it does have a, you know, weird, re, you know, re- reflex that you're, you're not really quite expecting. But overall, I have to say it's fun. Um, it's not, you know, a world beater or anything like 94 was, but it's also not really the direct to, uh, you know, you know the trek to get through that uh, ninety nine was so. It's a nice step in the right direction. Um, I mean, I can't wait for eighty nine when that one gets announced for next year because I think that's probably. I, I would bet that would be the next one if they're going because that would be like the height of uh, you know VHS. So, um, I mean, like you know the mom and pop stores to you know like everybody was like pumping stuff out like you know eighty seven, eighty eight, eighty nine. Um, I think those are probably going to, that would probably be like the, you know, the next year, um, to do this, but, um, yeah, overall a fun time, not, you know, a a complete time waster, but, uh, you know, it doesn't really have like the high that previous entries had. I mean, even 94, I think the the best one in that one, uh, is better than the best one in here. So, uh, it, it does have, it does have some highs. And uh, I, I think the consistency for this one just kind of uh, was the, the part that I enjoyed the most about it. But, yeah, um, other than that, I really don't know if there's something I can spoil. Um, what I'm going to say is going to spoil it, so I'll just uh, leave it at that. Back to you, Mike. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so... <laughs> I guess it's another episode where it's kind of three for three. I, I kind of feel the same way. Did I like VHS 85? Yes, but to me, the the major downfall of this one is it doesn't have, like, that one uh, banger segment that, like, stays with you, like, long after that everyone's going to be talking about uh, to, to make you want to rewatch it, like, over and over, or at least, like, revisit it right away. I still did overall enjoy it though and I think it was Venom that said uh, the the wraparound was one of his favorite parts and I I agree I actually wish we got more I wish um, (laughs) once we kind of got the conclusion of the wraparound that that would have been long because I'm really a sucker for that type of story um, which I won't get into what it is yet but then funny enough my, my second favorite segment was the two-part one but i feel like we needed more of on that too because they did something a little interesting with it where the the first part felt like it was something 
different than it was than it turned out to be because like the focus of it kind of changed when we got the second part and i and i felt like um when we we left off with the the group from the first one at a certain crossroads and on the on the rewatch because i did watch it a second time i i get what i think how or how the second group tied into the events of the second part of the segment but i still wish we would have got more and a little more uh background into exactly what this family was like what the background on the whole thing their celebration and why they do it and what exactly it's for because i thought it was really interesting it's just i I wanted more and i wanted to see what happened kind of in the aftermath because like when we went when we went to a certain place in a unrelated segment i was like oh maybe that person will pop up here but it wasn't to be and uh that's unfortunate but i really did like the segment i just wish we would have got even more more with it but um I I also agree with Dawn. Like I, I I wasn't that impressed with Techno God. Like I'm 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 just kind of surprised Venom liked it so much. I just felt like it was very there wasn't a lot to it, and I I think I think they were trying to do the heavy messaging on like you know the future of technology and what it could do to us because since this was '85. Uh, it, this kind of technology obviously in its infancy so like they can only do so much without it being you know in order to keep it authentic in order to keep it authentic to the to the year you can only have so much now I did think the segment we did get kind of uh, a good conclusion to it with some practical effects which I was very happy with how it ended especially that last shot um, that was really cool uh, the Gigi Saul Guerrero. I don't know, man. That's another segment where I liked it. I just felt like I wanted more at the end, and I feel like I feel like all the VHSs ever since we got Safe Haven, it seems like all of them want to like kind of do their version of that, and they just can't quite pull it off because that that segment was just so amazing. Like I still every time there's a new VHS, I still think of Safe Haven for some like it's just always <laughs> in my head. Um, and I see like attempts to kind of like do something along those lines, but so far it's just nothing's ever touched that as far as the ones done in almost that, in that style. But uh, other than that, I mean, I agree with what you guys have to say. Like I, I did like it I, better than 99. Um, so I think like it is an improvement and it's like kind of, it did enough to get it back on track. I just think that nothing, nothing topped like good. Like we didn't get great out of this one i was hoping for like one or more segments that would really be great i i, I think it's like a solid good entry uh which is lacking the great that that the tops in the franchise have delivered so I'll, I'll leave it at that let me go ahead and give everybody some background as to why i really enjoyed techno god um i Fear Factory is one of my favorite bands of all time. They are literally a top three band for me ever. And anybody who knows anything about Fear Factory knows every single album that they have ever made in their entire career is about AI and technology rising up against us. Um, And most of their music videos have that same theme as well. So that's something that I've kind of always 
over the last 30 or so years since the first Fear Factory album came out. I believe it was like 92 or 93 for the first one. I've been a hardcore fan, and that message has always kind of been something that's kind of permeated in my brain. So when I see this segment, it's basically a Fear Factory album come to life. Literally, you know, the fear of a techno god, uh, an AI god that will rise up against us. Yes, it's, it's, it's a version of Skynet. I understand that. But it's something, and obviously Terminator 2 is a huge influence on Fear Factory, you know, as far as their songwriting goes. So, so th- that kind of gives you a little bit of background as to why I kind of like Techno God. I kind of like the setup for it, too, because I've actually seen a few of those one-person shows, you know, those stage shows with one person on stage just kind of ranting or, you know, spouting off poetry or whatever the case may be. I live in Los Angeles, so... I, I live in the, probably the world capital of one-man shows. So just the setup worked for me. Um, what she was going for in her little segment uh, worked for me. Uh, and how it ended definitely worked for me. I mean, you know, she sat there. She was. It, this is a perfect example of be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. And that's exactly what happened with Techno God. Plus, it's the shortest segment, so... Why wouldn't it be one of my favorite segments of the movie? As I've said, this movie is, you know, good at best. It's it's average to good. So give me those short segments all day long, and I'm happy with it. So um, I also thought the, the, the one person, because it's basically one person on stage with, like, maybe four or five people in the audience. So it, it just worked for me personally. So I, I can definitely see why I'm the only person who re- who really enjoyed that segment. But, yeah. Um, ultimately, my favorite is still going to be the wraparound. For it, you know, I wish it was a segment so that I could say my favorite segment was Rory, but I can't because it was the rap. So, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, I don't know. There's not a whole lot we can really discuss without getting into actual story points. Um, right? It's just... Uh... Um, the only thing that I do want to mention... Um... Mm-hmm. Do you guys ever get the feeling that, I, I mean, it's been confirmed, so it's not really a spoiler, but uh, the one by, um, I, I, I forget his name, but the, the, the serial killer segment, that is confirmed as being in the uh, Black Phone universe. Oh, I thought it was, I, I guess it could be, yeah. It is, it, it's it's Scott Derrickson, you know, uh, director right. of The Strangers. So. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it could be. I, I try not to read. I literally just watched this movie today for the first time, and I try not okay. to do any research on them before I check them out. Obviously, you know, it's October, so I got a busy month of movie watching. Um, so I didn't get a chance to watch this a second time. But, yeah, I mean, I I, I, I hadn't heard that, but if you, oh, if you say I, mean, it, I have no reason not yeah, to believe you. The, yeah, he's confirmed it on his Twitter thing. Yeah, he's, okay, cool. Yeah, so he, he said that that it is uh, in part in that universe. So I'm um, like I'm saying, huh, interesting, uh, interesting to be part of the, the that universe. But just because this one has a little bit more of a supernatural element than than anything in the Black Phone, so that kind of it's a weird one. But I can see it. That's fine. Um, I guess let's just get into it. Yeah, I mean, we got a lot to talk about here. Five segments yeah. plus a wraparound. Well, four segments, really. Uh, one segment split into two. 
Um, when I saw five director names, I'm like, oh, shit, we're getting five segments because we don't usually get five full segments, but eh, we still kind of didn't, so I'm okay with it. <laughs> so let's just go ahead and get into it. That's your final spoiler warning, folks. We're going to go ahead and get into the walkthrough of the individual segments in VHS 85, so if you haven't watched it yet, go ahead and check it out if you're even interested, and then you know come back to us here. Otherwise, if you've seen it or don't care to see it, Let's go forward. All right. So our movie opens up very WN, uh, WNUF Halloween special style, where it's basically just a television and somebody's flipping through. They're flipping through commercials. There's like a monster truck thing and a bunch of other cool just like 80s commercials that are playing like local pay cable commercials. Um, and then and then finally, uh, the, the channel flipping stops and ends up on a show that it's almost like an Unsolved Mysteries 2020 Nightline style news program where they're talking about an experiment that happened at a lab uh, involving a subject named Rory. Uh, we don't really find out much about this during the first little segment other than it looks like, a, you know, just a person who doesn't really move, doesn't really speak, just sits in one spot, and they are basically setting up an experiment for him. I'm going to go ahead and run through the entire segment rather than going back and forth, you know, in between. So as as the segment, as we come back to the wraparound, we, we, we find out that Rory is actually an alien. He is not from this planet. And uh, there is a doctor in this that is basically doing experiments, trying to figure out what he is and what his intentions are. They basically have him in like a room, like a, like a, a fake uh, living room uh, with like a couch and a television. And they've just got like standard 80s television playing on the TV. The hope is that the alien will learn our language by watching television. Um, you know, obviously our, our doctor, our, you know, our scientist thinks that, thinks that this thing is a hyper intelligent being. So figures I'll let it watch TV and it will learn our language so that we can communicate. Eventually uh, they, we end up finding out that the doctor named the subject Rory. So all through, all through the uh, segments and every time we return to the wraparound, we hear Rory's name and every time we come back to the wraparound, Rory is more and more mutated. Um, basically, he uh, almost like he forms a cocoon around himself. Not a true cocoon, but almost like just a blob of pus and whatnot, just red liquid. Uh, eventually, he starts to take shape, and he starts to look like one of the uh, lab assistants, Um I think, uh, what was it, George, I think his name was, something along those lines. Uh, but basically, he's looking exactly like this one lab assistant. The problem is, this lab assistant has not been in the room with Rory. So Rory isn't deciding to, you know, emulate someone that he's seen in the room with him. He's emulating someone who he's never seen, and they're trying to figure out why. Eventually, they figure out that Rory can actually see through one-way mirrors, um, you know, those police uh, mirrors, uh, one-way windows that people, you know, can look through one way but not the other. Uh, they figure out that he can look through that stuff and actually see us. Uh, we'll see the people on the other side of the glass, and hence why he's copying George. I don't know why. Maybe he just likes George's basic visage or whatever, but um, it starts copying him. 
Eventually, as we come back to the wraparound, Rory starts to get a little violent. Um, eventually, people start quitting, like lab assistants. We, we see a couple of them leave the experiment because they're not happy with what the doctor's trying to do. Uh, they're not happy with his methods because, obviously, the, the doctor doesn't really care about Rory Rory's welfare all that much. He just wants answers. You know, he's like Dr. Chenard in Hellraiser 2. He has to see. He has to know. Uh, one of my favorite horror quotes ever. Anyway, um, eventually uh, there's no more lab assistants left. It's literally the doctor, the main doctor, and George. Uh, and then there's an administrator there, too, a female administrator, you know, with a clipboard, blah, blah, blah. But as far as actual scientists, there's only the two. Um Something happens where the vital signs, Rory's vital signs start to kind of go down, almost like he's dying. Um, he's still basically in his kind of sort of cocoon thing, still vaguely looking like George. Um, and eventually the doctor orders George to go in there to give him a shot, a shot of adrenaline of all things. He wants to give a goddamn alien adrenaline. Because his vital signs are slowing down, which that, that, that doesn't seem like there was much forethought there. Before George can even get the syringe into Rory, one of uh, Rory literally develops this weird tentacle that looks like a tail because it's got like a fork at the end of it, almost like a devil, like a classic devil tail. You know what I mean? And, you know, it, it's just kind of floating in the air, just kind of looking around, not attacking or doing anything. But then as soon as George nears Rory's body to give him the the injection of adrenaline, this tentacle thing grabs George, pretty much wraps itself around George's arm, does not let go. Uh, eventually, the administrator is there witnessing this. She tries to get into the room and... They open up the door and, you know, George comes out, but he's still, Rory's tentacle is still attached to him. Suddenly, more tentacles start to appear outside. I'm calling them tentacles. They're not really tentacles. They're, they're, they're appendages of some kind. Um, so more of them start to appear. And then uh, one of them attacks the administrator, kills her. And then gives chase to the doctor. At this point, the doctor, George is dead. George has basically been squozen to death. Squozen. Is that a word? I'm going to go with it. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Uh, basically, the thing ends up chasing the doctor around until finally he gets the doctor pinned in a corner. Uh, the doctor is unable to use the hand scanner because his hand's covered in blood and it can't read his uh, fingerprints. Uh, so eventually uh, Rory just comes around the corner and just takes him out. Uh, and then uh, the final shot of the wraparound and the movie is basically Rory sitting on the couch in a very alien form where he's got, he almost looks like Audrey too from Little Shop of Horrors. Like he's, he almost looks like he's got like Venus flytrap style mouths, like three or four mouths around his gelatinous body. And then he still has those tentacles. Um, multiple times throughout the movie when we go back to the wraparound, we see Rory watching an exercise video, just, you know, a random exercise video of these women just, you know, doing random little jazzercise or whatever the hell it was. We all remember how aerobics were popular in the 80s. 
So after Rory basically kills everyone in the facility, we go back to his room and we see that he's using his tentacles to make the dead human bodies do the same exercise moves that are being done in the video. I don't know if I don't know if Rory just wanted some live entertainment or if he thinks it's funny to make these dead bodies act like the the, the women working out on the videos, but yeah. That's basically the final segment of our movie. I may not have done the wraparound justice, but I, I did really enjoy it. So, you know, that's that's our wraparound. And really that's the end of the movie when the wraparound ends. So let's go ahead and get into the individual sequences. Uh, oh, I, by I the way, I took Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I, t- I took that ending as, like, he was doing it for his own personal enjoyment. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it didn't seem, like, obviously killing the people was malicious, but the fact that he's sitting there, he, it's almost like he's playing with action figures. It, it's almost yeah. the, the best analogy I could think of. Um, so, yeah, uh, I forgot to mention that the wraparound does have a title. It's called Total Copy, and it is directed by David Bruckner, who uh, I believe directed 30 Days of Night, right? Am I thinking of the right guy? I want to say he did 30 days. No, that's... Um, oh, he did the Night House. Oh, he Night did the Ritual yeah. in Southbound. My bad. Yeah. Uh, so, yep, yep, yep. The Ritual and Housebound were by David Bruckner, who did the wraparound for this one. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump into our first segment. And the first segment is called No Wake. And basically all we see with this one is, you know, like five or six... You know, college-age kids in an RV. Uh, they're going out to go to a lake to just, you know, go swimming and water skiing for the day. Uh, one of them, when they arrive at the lake, they see a bunch of signs, wooden signs that have been torn down. And all the signs say, like, you know, no swimming, no wakeboarding, um, which I, I assume is where <laughs> the segment gets its title, No Wake. Mm-hmm. Um and it basically, you know, it, but but the the signs have all been ripped down. They're all on the ground. So obviously, it seems like somebody <laughs> wants uh, these kids to come swimming at this lake. Um, so they eventually do just go. They they go into the lake. A couple of them start swimming. Um, a few of them grab a boat that they brought with them on a trailer and start water skiing. Um, and then we start out of nowhere literally we start hearing bullets or at least we think they're bullets kind of whizzing by people and suddenly they're getting hit. Um, One girl gets hit in the mouth and she's got basically half of her lower jaw missing for the rest of the time that we see her. Um, We see, we see our main great practical effect shot. Oh, it's awesome. And they close up on it too. So it looks really nice. It looks like the bullet basically split her lower jaw, but the two halves of the jaw are still there. So she's got like a gaping maw in the middle of her face. It's pretty fucked up. Um, And, but she's still very much alive, which is kind of odd because it looks like a fatal injury. And then eventually more of the kids start getting shot um, by by this just mysterious sniper. We have no idea what's going on. Um, Eventually they all get shot and they all drop dead. Literally the last kid alive is our main cameraman who's holding the camera. He falls down in the boat with the camera facing one of their friends who's already been shot and killed. But then suddenly that that guy wakes up. Uh, the guy who literally took a bullet uh, up in the chest near his heart wakes up and he's like, is everybody okay? What's going on? Then our cameraman wakes up. 
he, you know, and he's like, whoa, what's going on? Blah, 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 blah. And then finally, uh, the girl that, that they were pulling with the boat because they were water skiing, she finally swims back to the boat and gets on the boat. Uh, and then eventually the girl that has her lower jaw split open by the sniper bullet, she ends up waking up and getting up. So it's, it's weird. It's almost like it's turning into a, a, a an odd zombie story. Um, but eventually they end up getting back on the boat. Um, they get back to their campsite, which is right there on the edge of the lake. And they realize that their two friends that didn't come swimming with them are both dead. They're very dead. And then finally, uh, at one point, uh, our main cameraman hands the camera over to someone else, and we see that he's literally been shot in the head to the point where he has a hole in the back of his head, and he's got brain matter sticking out of it. And at one point, he even pulls a piece of his own brain out. He's like, this doesn't make sense. Are we zombies? I mean, they even bring up zombies. Uh, the main girl, like the, the girl who was water skiing, you know, is trying to calm everybody down and say, we're not fucking zombies. We're talking. We're talking. We're not trying to eat each other's flesh. You know, yes, we've all been shot and conceivably should be dead, but we're not, except for the two that weren't. In, that didn't go on the lake, the two that stayed on shore to, you know, go in the tent and do whatever it is kids do. They they start to realize, or, or at least the kid who found all the no swimming signs on the ground, starting to realize why nobody should be swimming here, because apparently this water has some kind of effect on the people that touch it that they cannot die. Literally, as I've said, half of these kids have all been shot in the head, in the face, in the heart. Yet they're all standing up and talking to each other. They realize uh, one of the girls, the you know the main girl, the smart girl, realizes that while she was water skiing, there was a blue pickup truck parked near their campsite that didn't belong to any of them. And then once they got back on shore, found their friends, their two friends dead. They realized the truck was gone, and. Basically, while our main girl is tending to the girl whose lower jaw got split, she basically says, you know, did anybody get the license plate? Because they actually did catch the truck on the video camera. Don't forget, this is a found footage movie. Everything's being recorded on VHS. So they end up looking back at the video, realizing that they do have both the truck and the license plate. And basically the segment ends with our main girl going, okay, we, we know how to find them now. Let's go. And one of the other kids is like, what, what are we going to do? Kill them? And, and she's like, oh, no, no, no. We're not murderers. We're not going to kill them, but we're going to do something. And then the segment just ends and that's it. And it's like, you're, you're left scratching your head. Like what the fuck is going on now? I'm going to go ahead and skip to the second part of this just because it makes more yeah. sense. The second half of this segment is called Ambrosia, uh, still directed by Mike Nelson, same as, uh, you know, the first half. But with this segment, we're introduced to a girl who's about to have a birthday party of some kind, um, almost like a coming out party or something like that. And as, as her family is at the house, and they're in the suburbs, you know, they're not like in the woods or anything. And uh, as she's preparing for the party and as her family is preparing for the party, her little brother – oh, and I – shit. Um, her little brother hits uh, – basically squirts her with a water gun. Now, I forgot to mention that in the first segment, 
the kids had an orange plastic water gun that was filled with vodka and that they were they were actually taking shots of it with the water gun. So when the little kid in this segment, and this is segment number four in chronological order as far as the movie goes, so it's been like an hour since the first half of the segment finished. At this point, you don't know that they're related until you see that water gun. It's like, wait a minute, isn't that the orange water gun from the first segment? And then the yeah. sister asks, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, and then I think later in it they – we see the RV and they mention the RV and then right, right. That's, you yeah, slowly that's start to put it together. To yeah. Exactly. So basically after the little brother shoots his sister with the, with the water pistol, she asks him, where did you get it? And he says, the lady in the RV gave it to me. And, she, and she's like, what RV? And then the little kid is like, oh, there it is. And when the camera pans over, we just see the back end of the RV pulling away. And the RV does look very familiar. If you were paying attention to the first segment, um, so anyway, then the party begins and in the house, uh, the girl that we're following starts talking about how, you know, she loves that this family has this tradition that they've been keeping it up for, you know, however many generations she starts talking about different people in her family. She talks about her, her uncle, who's a master with a sickle. And and I'm like, why? Why are you bringing up a sickle? And then she talks about her aunt and how her aunt is proficient with poisons, that she actually poisons people. You start to realize that this family is not normal. This is a very fucked up family. <laughs> and, uh, and then we find out that in this family, they have a rite of passage where when you become an adult, I'm assuming this is the girl's 18th birthday or something like that. When you become an adult, you have to kill seven people. They don't really get into why. Again, it's an anthology segment, so we're not going to get a lot of exposition, a lot of explanation. But it turns out that everyone in this family, when they became an adult, killed seven people. That's why she was talking about her uncle with the sickle and her aunt with, you know, her proficiency in poisons. At this point, she says, I know that usually the tradition is that we would show pictures or slides of the victims, but this time I have a videotape. And she pulls out a VHS tape. She pops the tape in. Lo and behold, it's the kids from the first segment. Uh, they're setting up their camp. She's obviously off to the edge videotaping. Uh, and then we kind of see the events of the first segment play out. But this time we're seeing them play out uh, from the angle of this girl uh, from the from the second half of the segment. And we see that she pulls out a sniper rifle. First, she kills the two people in the tent. And then she starts slowly taking out everybody on the lake. Eventually, once she's done uh, shooting everybody on the lake, she basically just packs up and leaves, and that's pretty much the end of that. But obviously, um, because they caught her truck in the videotape and they found the license plate, um, are they're able to find who this person is. Before anything really happens with that, with the revenge element, suddenly the police show up. And the police have the house surrounded. So obviously somebody ratted them out, more than likely our friends from the lake. Uh, 
and they're getting taken out, like the family. First, uh, the girl, the main girl's mom gets taken out, and then, like, aunts and uncles are being shot left and right. Uh, eventually, the, the actual person who's holding the camera in this segment is one of their wormy little cousins. Who's He's kind of like a techno geek, but he's also an asshole to his family. Um, eventually, the cops show up. They start killing people. She's up in her bedroom kind of, uh, you know, creating a defensive position. She tries to hand her cousin a gun and says, here, take this, defend yourself. Um, unfortunately, he's uh, kind of a bitch when it comes to firearms and basically says, no, I don't want to do that. I don't think I can do it. And then she says, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Takes the gun, shoots her cousin like three times, uh, and he falls down dead. The camera falls, of course, as is the case with found footage movies. The camera falls in a very convenient position so that it's showing her um, kind of leaning up against the bed with her gun. We hear the police throughout the house killing people. Then finally we start to hear footsteps coming towards the door. And we hear police yelling, you know, telling people to put their hands up, blah, blah, blah. Eventually they break the door down to her bedroom she starts shooting them. They, in turn, return fire, killing her. And like I said, the camera is still in that position where it's showing her perfectly, and she's dead. She took a couple of shots to the chest, and she's just gone. But then literally after like 30 or 40 seconds, she wakes up. And she's like, wait a minute, what's going on? She realizes that she's going to get caught, that there's no way that she can get out of this situation. And earlier in the segment, her mother told her, we are never taken alive. Take out as many police officers as you can and save one bullet for yourself. And if, if you can't get out of the situation, take yourself out. So after she wakes up and realizes that she's still alive after taking a bunch of bullets from the police, she picks up a handgun, her handgun, and puts it under her chin and pulls the trigger, you know, blowing the top of her head off. She falls back on the bed, but we see her eyes still moving. And then she gets up and she's like, what the fuck is going on? Eventually, we see the police storm their way into the room and arrest the girl. And then the segment ends with the main girl, the water skiing girl from the first half of the segment, showing her filling the water gun with water from that lake. So now, you know, the, the second half gives us the confirmation that, yeah, anybody touched by that water becomes immortal. And maybe not in the greatest way, because um, if you take an injury, it's not like that injury heals. Like that guy who took a bullet to the head and most of his brain is exposed, he's living like that forever. <laughs> it's not healing, blah, blah, blah. So... So that was the eventual revenge that the campers got. You know, they put the they, they realized what the water in the lake was doing. They put it in the water gun. They they you know nonchalantly handed it to the little brother and probably said, "Oh, you want to play a good trick on your sister? Here, shoot her with the water gun." And of course, as soon as the water touched sister, she is now immortal, uh, and now she's going to live a nice, long, happy life in prison, uh, and she can never kill herself, which I think is amazing. Just desserts actually i think that's great so that's the end of ambrosia slash no wake the two-parter um then we go to our second segment our second segment is called god of death and this one is directed by Gigi saul guerrero um for the most part we've reviewed almost all of her films uh even a couple of her shorts and 
Um, I personally am a fan. I follow her. I, I talk to her every couple of weeks on social media. She's an awesome girl, blah, 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 blah. Um, so this segment starts out in, it's in Mexico, Mexico City. Uh, this, this segment is in Spanish, so you're going to have to deal with subtitles for this one. Um, it, it basically shows a, uh, uh, an anchor, a news anchor, getting ready for the morning news. And, you know, she's just sitting there getting her makeup and hair done, and, you know, she's shooting the shit, having some fun, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they eventually go to, like, an on-location reporter, and the reporter is Gigi Saul Guerrero. That's our director. She is the, uh, the on-field reporter, if you will. And then basically at exactly 7.15, the program starts. I don't know what news program starts at 7.15 in the morning, but whatever. As soon as the program starts and the host, uh, who is a slightly older woman, starts to give, you know, just like the morning spiel, like, you know, good morning, I hope everyone's having a good day, blah, blah, blah. Literally, the building starts shaking. And then they realize, oh, shit, it's an earthquake. But this is no simple earthquake. This is a major, major earthquake to the point where I think one of them mentioned that the top three floors of the building that they were in had all collapsed. And they were on the fourth to the top floor. They were literally on the floor above all the collapsed floors. Um, we see um, Luis, who is the cameraman uh, for the show. Apparently, he's the only person who survived. Uh, the host ends up getting crushed by a large piece of building uh, that falls right on her and crushes her head up against the desk. Um, everybody else that's in that room seems to be gone, and the only person left is Luis. And his camera, of course, is still working. How the hell would we know it? Um, so eventually, rescue workers show up, and they're able to get Luis up and out of the room, uh, unfortunately, the building is col it's actively collapsing. Um, when they finally get outside, they see all the destruction. It looks like a major, major earthquake hit Mexico City. Um, I didn't actually check my history to see if uh, an earthquake actually hit Mexico City in 1985. It did. It actually did. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. She, Beautiful. Yeah, she, yeah, she's confirmed on several occasions that as soon as they said she, they were doing 85, she knew what her segment was, which was the earthquake. Yeah, so that makes sense. And um, so at this point, the rescue workers are trying to get Luis and themselves out of the building. We see them, you know, going onto like out uh, exterior, like stairwells. Um, everything is collapsing. Roofs are collapsing. Walls are collapsing. They're trying to get down the building, down the stairs as fast as they can. What ends up happening is they end up going too far down. They end up missing the ground floor and going down into a basement of the building. Suddenly, the decor of the room that they're in kind of changes. Like, it's no longer rubble and broken drywall, you know, like a collapsed building. Suddenly, it's all just rock. It's like they're in a cave or something, and it's a dirt floor and just rock all around them, above them, everything. Eventually, they get to a a carving on the wall that, if you've watched Mexican movies or pop culture, then it looks very familiar. Actually, we saw that mask recently in the Saw movie. If you guys remember the trap where, where the guy had to pick out a piece of his brain – and then the mask eventually closes on his face. That's literally the carving that we see in this wall. And 
suddenly they start hearing like a booming voice. Um, just they don't know what's going on. And eventually we see this Aztec god um, standing there. He's oh, very tall, well over six feet tall. He's got his outfit on, you know, his headdress, not wearing a shirt. He's, you know, he's got the cool Aztec outfit on. And it basically, uh, as soon as that happens, uh, the female of the rescuers, uh, of the rescue team, there's a female on the team. She, for no reason whatsoever, takes off all her clothes, gets butt naked, and then starts stabbing Luis with a crowbar, basically just hitting him over and over and over again. She ends up stabbing him so much that she's able to pull his heart out. She ends up reaching into his chest, pulling his heart out, and then she hands it to the Aztec god. And while she's doing this, she's spouting off different names, different Aztec names, um, stuff like Izputek and Mitlan and what do we got here? Zantemak. Uh, I wrote down all of them, but they're that Aztec writing where there's a lot of uh, Z's in it, and some sometimes they're silent and sometimes they're not, so it's kind of hard to dif- uh, difficult. Uh, it turns out that this particular god is uh, Miklan, and she says his name a few times, and then she just says rise, the word rise. She hands the heart over to Mitlan. He takes a bite out of it, And then she starts repeating, rise, rise, louder and louder until eventually uh, the entire building just collapses down on top of them. And that's pretty much the end of the segment. Well, no, we get a little bit of an epitaph uh, where we return outside to Gigi Saul Guerrero's uh, reporter. And she's doing a report, you know, post-earthquake where she's talking about this is one of the most horrific things we've ever seen and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It has, This is worse than the 57 earthquake, which apparently was a really bad one in Mexico City as well. And then that's where our segment ends there. So that is God of Death. Uh, pretty quick and to the point. I don't remember that one being too terribly long. Our next segment is called Techno God, but it's just um, it's not spelled out techno god. It, it, the literal spelling is T K N O G D, but when pronounced phonetically, it's techno god. And uh, basically, this is a very simple one. Uh, we see a woman in a small theater. She's setting up a camera behind the stage. We see that there's three cameras there. One that's being held in the back of the room by a cameraman. And then she sets up her laptop at the back of the stage as one camera. And then it looks like the stage itself has like a security camera on the right side of the stage also pointing down. And then she basically just starts doing like spoken word poetry, um, you know, like poetry slam stuff where she's kind of condemning technology. She's talking about how people have killed God. We have killed God. You know, we revered the gods for so long. And then because of human advancement and technology, we've basically killed those same gods. And she starts talking about, well, we can't have a world without gods. When one god is killed, it must be replaced by another god. And then she starts talking about the god of technology. Uh, the techno god, if you will. And at the same time that she's doing her little performance, she's um, first she plays a video 
which is um, it's a video of a guy who looks like he invented the Oculus Rift, you know, the, the headset, the gaming headset that you know, a lot of us have right now. Um, but he basically invented something along those lines that utilizes the goggles um, and almost and power gloves, for lack of a better word, I think they call them technical gloves or digital gloves, something like that in the movie. But really, they're power gloves. They're Nintendo Power Gloves. I don't care what you tell me. And he's explaining how in the virtual world, when you're wearing these gloves, you can actually reach out, grab a virtual cup, and, you know, and interact with it like if it was real. Um, he's actually talking up uh, virtual reality way more than it, it, how good it actually is. I, I've done multiple virtual reality games, and they almost always disappoint me. Anyway, um, that's the first video that she plays, the guy who invented this. And then she basically says, there is your God killer. He has killed God with his new invention. Then what she does is she actually will, uh, on the screen, she brings up almost like a digital world. Um, it looks a lot like the uh, digital world that Homer gets stuck in in that Treehouse of Horrors segment from years ago. Um, just very basic um, elementary technology, you know, graphics. It doesn't look graphically beautiful. For 1985, it looks actually pretty fucking good. But obviously we look at it today and it looks kind of lacking. But she's basically um, playing that on the screen and then she grabs a, um, a set of those goggles and gloves that this guy invented. She puts them on. And now she is part of the digital world. We don't actually see her in the digital world. Uh, for the most part, the camera view stays out in the stage in the theater area. But the screen is there so that we see what she sees, basically, in that digital world. And then, basically, she starts doing an incantation. She even calls it an incantation, where she's, she's requesting the presence of the, of the techno-god. And she's like yelling, you know, where are you? And, you know, to the point where she's yelling at the top of her lungs. Finally, we, something shows up on the screen that kind of shocks the audience. Um, and it scares her a little bit. It just flashes on the screen quickly. You know, your, your basic humanoid demonic form. You know, we've seen it before. Uh, but then it starts to show up more and more until finally it's just right there standing in front of her in the digital world. So the audience is looking at this on the screen. She's experiencing it with her headset on. And suddenly the God starts to attack her and starts literally throwing her around to the point that in the real world, she's actually being lifted off the ground and falling back down. So literally everything that this techno God is doing to her in uh, the virtual world is translating to the real world. Uh, but obviously Nobody in the audience can see the techno god other than what they can see on screen. Eventually, the techno god starts scratching at one of her legs and literally skins one of her legs completely, just pulls all the skin and a lot of the muscle. So, I mean, there's actually bone exposed and some muscle tissue just completely fucked up. And then he takes one big swing and literally cuts off her other leg. Her other leg literally flies into the audience. The audience doesn't really know what's going on. They, they, to their knowledge, they're watching a show. They're watching a staged performance. But this girl is actually getting decimated by the techno god. 
eventually after she's dead, you know, missing a leg, the other leg is com- is completely devoid of skin. The cameraman in the back of the theater starts to walk up on stage and get close-ups of her. And at that point, the audience starts to fucking applaud. Even to the point where even one guy sitting in the front row has this woman's blood on him. Literally, he was hit with blood uh, spatter. Uh, But everybody in the theater starts to applaud like it's the greatest thing they've ever seen. And that's the end of our segment. The techno god makes the appearance that she wanted him to make so desperately. But like I said, I know that that segment's not going to speak to everyone. It's absolutely not. But because of my past and because of uh, my my own kind of inherent fear of AI and technology rising up against us, this kind of works for me. So it's nice and violent. There's some practical effects. And like I said, it's short. I, th- I think it's like less than 10 minutes. For for a movie, it's an hour and 50 minutes long. To have a 10 to 15 minute segment in there is pretty nice, in my opinion. So that is Techno God, directed by Natasha Kermani. Next on the docket um, is going to be... Well, the next... In chronological order after Techno God would be the second part of the two-parter. Um, you know, with the girl and her family and the rite of passage and everything. And then the movie ends with one final segment uh, called Dream Kill. And Dream Kill is directed by Scott Derrickson, director of The Strangers, one of my favorite home invasion movies ever. I know it's a very divisive movie. A lot of people hate it. I don't care. I fucking love it. So in Dream Kill, what we see is we see the first person POV of a serial killer. And he's breaking into a woman's house. At the same time that he's breaking into the house, we hear her 911 call. She actually calls 911, says that there's someone breaking into my house. You know, I need the police here. Um, She talks about hearing him get in the house and then hearing him walk up the stairs. Eventually, he walks up the stairs into her bedroom. He doesn't see her right away because at this point she's trying to be quiet. But what he does see is that the telephone on uh, one side of the bed the receiver part of it is uh, like leading under the bed. Like it's off the hook and it's under the bed. So, of course, he looks under the bed, finds her down there, and grabs her and just fucking decimates her. He he slits her throat with an electric knife. You know, one of those serrated electric knives that some people carve a turkey with. Literally cuts her throat with that Stabs her a few more times and then ties her up on the bed. I don't know why he ties her up post-mortem, but he does. Then we find out uh, it's later that same evening and the police have arrived. And we see a police lieutenant, um, a homicide detective. Basically, he arrives at the scene and he's like, man, this house looks really familiar. I feel like I've seen this before. And as he continues to walk through the house, he realizes, wait a minute, I have seen this house before. This house was in a videotape that the police um, received the week before. So somehow the police got a videotape of the murder that happened this night, but they got it a week early. So instantly, you know, we're thinking, ooh, time-traveling slasher or something like that. Um, 
But obviously, it's a one-time event, so they kind of chalk it up to just circumstance and, you know, maybe he was confused or blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, even when he sees the body, he's like, yeah, that's the woman that was in the video. She got her throat slit, right? And he says that before he actually got a chance to look at the body, and the other police are like, yeah, how did you know she got her throat slit, blah, blah, blah. Um, After that, uh, again, we go back to the POV of the killer, and it's a different night. And this time, um, he breaks into some guy's house and ends up getting into a fight with the guy. Basically, you know, uh, punching him. I mean, this killer must be ultra strong, too, because he's throwing this guy around. Like, this guy doesn't look like a weakling. You know, he looks like he's in halfway decent shape, you know, middle-aged guy. But he's getting thrown around like a rag doll, um, you know, which makes you feel like there's a supernatural element to this thing. Um, eventually we see the killer in the POV shot, um, pull out the electric knife from the previous murder, the exact same, apparently the guy kept it, the killer kept the knife, and we see him cut the fingers of, the guy's fingers off, all four of his fingers off of his right hand, he just cuts them all off in one swoop, And, and eventually he does end up killing the guy completely, and then again, um, the scene fades. When we fade back up, it, the police have arrived at the scene. They're investigating. And once again, our homicide detective is there. And he's like, God damn it, it happened again. I saw this murder in a tape that we received four days ago. This time it wasn't quite a full week. It was only four days. But yeah. Um, so obviously something really fucked up is going on because now that it, it's a repeat offense, um, you know, you can't call it circumstance. There's got to be something weird going on. Um, and they even make the gag of a time-traveling slasher. I actually wrote that in my notes after the first uh, part of this video, and then the police officer himself says it later on. I'm like, eh, yeah, great minds think alike, blah, blah, blah. So eventually they're able to figure out what mailbox the videos were mailed from. It's just a public mailbox on, on a, a street, any, any given suburban street. They decide to set up surveillance there. Um, the unmanned surveillance is not successful. The second murder occurs even though they've got the, uh, you know, the surveillance camera there. So they decide to put an actual unit at that mailbox, which is really weird because the, the, the person who mails the video doesn't see the police car that is literally right there, unless he just wanted to get caught, which is a potential, uh, it potentially could be the case. But what ends up happening is they arrest the person, they, they see this person who they've seen on a videotape, on the surveillance tape, uh, mailing a package. Uh, they end up arresting this person, and it's it's a kid. It's like, I don't know, 17, 18-year-old kid named Gunther, and he's ultra emo. Holy shit. Is, or maybe goth. I, I'm, I'm an old man. I can't tell the difference between goth and emo. Maybe, I think more goth, because he's wearing all black. He's got the white makeup on, black lipstick, black nail polish, blah, 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 blah. Very, very goth. Um, so, of course... Our homicide detective is there and wants to interview him. The weird thing about this interview is that he actually brings the guy's father in to the interview with him. Um, I, because the, the, his, Gunther's father is another cop on the, on the force. So, you know, I, I think it's a major, you know, 
conflict of interest, but whatever. Um, so the homicide detective and the and Gunther's dad are there interviewing him, and they're trying to find out what's going on. Where did you get this videotape? And the kid's like, I got it from my house. And they're like, well, what do you mean you got it from your house? You need to explain yourself. So the kid finally starts to explain that he has visions and that he has dreams and that his dreams tend to come true, but that at first they were just mundane dreams, like just everyday stuff that would happen. But then eventually the dreams started to get more violent and he's seeing people getting murdered in his dreams. And uh, somehow they don't really get into how, but somehow uh, a VHS camera that the kid has in his house is somehow recording his dreams. That's what these tapes are. These tapes are basically this kid's dreams of murders that are happening, you know, up to a week ahead of time. So he's been sending them into the police, uh, apparently to try to help the police, because he knows that they're visions. He knows that the murders haven't happened yet, and figures maybe if I send the tape into the police, they'll be able to figure out what's going on. But, of course, they end up arresting him before that happens. Obviously, the cop is kind of skeptical, doesn't believe the kid. But then the dad says, yeah, this makes sense. Um, Multiple people in my family have always have had that ability of of prophetic dreams. And, you know, the cop is like, wait, prophetic dreams of like, yeah, basically, you know, um, my sister had it. Um, this guy's, you know, my son's mother had it, my ex-wife, uh, and then he talks about how he hates it. Um, I don't know if he's implying that he has it too, or if he just hates that everybody else in his family has it, but yeah, he talks about how much he hates it. And then finally, after the interview, they finally decide to watch the tape that the kid was mailing when he got arrested. Uh, We see the video, and once again, it's um, the POV of a killer walking into a woman's house this time and basically dismembering her body. literally cuts off her arms, her head, and just kind of leaves them all in a pile there. And the cop is like, what is this? And again, the kid is like, I don't know. It's one of my dreams. It's what I saw. It's what I saw last night. That's why I was mailing you the video, blah, blah, blah. Um, they decide that they're, that they're going to watch the video more closely to try to see if they can figure out where the house is. Eventually they're able to see the numbers of the house. Um, um, and in the reflection of the front window, they're able to see a water tower with the text on the water tower facing the house. Instantly the cop is like, oh yeah, I know exactly where this is. I know I know where that water tower is, and I know what street this is. So they end up going to the location. But when they get to the location, uh, the homicide detective isn't in a hurry to get into the house. Instead, he decides to question Gunther's father. And he tells, he asks him, he says, um, why didn't you tell me that the woman in the first video was suing you? And he's like, what? You know, Gunther's dad is, you know, trying to play stupid. He's like, what? What are you talking about? And the guy's like, yeah, both women, both the woman that's already dead and the woman that's not quite dead yet but dies in the latest video, both of them are suing you. And the second victim, the guy who had his fingers cut off, is the lawyer that they hired to sue this guy. Um, 
So instantly, and then out of nowhere, I swear to God, out of nowhere, bam, bullet right to the fucking middle of the forehead of the homicide detective, and he's dead. We see Gunther's father get out of the car and go into the house and finish what he needs to finish. So basically, you know, the the, the prophetic dream that uh, that Gunther had, uh, the guy's basically making it come true now. So as it turns out, Gunther is having dreams of his own father's killing spree. But because everything is always in POV, he never got to see the face of the killer. So he had no idea who it was. Now, while all this is happening at the third victim's house, you know, the the homicide detective getting shot, while all this is happening, they left Gunther in the interrogation room with the video camera um, still pointed at him, and he he basically he fell asleep at some point, but then when he wakes up, he sees that the red light is on on the camera, and it turns itself off really quickly. Like, as soon as the camera realizes that Gunther notices the light on, it turns itself off. So, of course, Gunther gets up and watches the video because he had fallen asleep right next to the video camera. He's watching the camera, and we don't actually get to see what he's seeing at this point, but he is reacting quite violently, like, you know, what he saw is horrific and blah, blah, blah. We actually do hear the gunshot that kills uh, the detective in the car. Um, So basically the kid understands now that it's his father who's killing everybody, and that's why he's able to see these visions in his dreams. So... Uh, basically the dad shows back up at the police station and at this point he's gone completely over the edge. He's just Mr. Homicide. He is basically killing cops left and right. Every cop that comes near him, he's shooting down. Eventually he gets back to the interrogation room that Gunther is in and basically lets Gunther know, I fucking hate that, you know, that you have these visions, that you can see everything that I do. I can't stand that about you. And now I'm going to kill you and end all of this. And then Gunther goes, no, you're not. I, I've i already seen the video. I know how this ends. And the dad is like, what? And Gunther's like, yeah, you're not going to kill me. Uh, no one's going to kill me. I know what happens. I've already seen it. At that moment, dad starts getting shot at by more cops. Cops, um, reinforcement shows up. They start kind of pouring into the hallway, but the dad is kind of picking them off as they come in. First, he's shooting them with a handgun. Then once that runs out of ammo, he goes back into the interrogation room, grabs a shotgun off the wall, no fucking police station would ever keep shotguns on the wall of an interrogation room. But again, it's a horror movie, so I'm going to let it go. Um, he grabs a shotgun and starts just killing cops left and right with the shotgun. He blows one guy's arm off. He blows one guy's leg off, then shoots him in the face. Just, you know, cops are falling left and right. And then finally, from behind, we hear a single shot and we see a bullet go through Gunther's dad's head. Uh, As his body falls, we see Gunther standing behind him, holding the gun pointed at him. And then, of course, Gunther drops the gun. And that's the end of our segment. That is the end of Dream Kill. And um, I think that's everything, right? Did we go over all of them? I know we did them out of yeah, order because you did because the of, yeah because yeah, you did the wraparound yeah yeah so yeah so that is our five segments plus our wraparound 
like I said, NR two-parter, if you want to, if, if you even want to call that two separate segments, otherwise four segments in our wraparound. But uh, yeah, like I said, not a terrible movie. It's just that some of the earlier uh, VHS films were so good that now, you know, we expect a little bit more and, you know, we're still getting decent segments here and there. Like I said, this one is definitely a half step to a full step better than the last one to the point where I can't really pick out a segment in this movie that I hate. Whereas in the last one, I hated the hell sequence. Uh, I hated the Medusa segment. You know, there were multiple segments in the last one that I hated in this one. I don't hate any of them. I don't really love any of them either. Um, like I said, I like the wraparound. I like techno God. I like God of death. I am a Gigi Saul Guerrero fan. So you know, by by default, I tend to like a lot of what she does. Um, as soon as the segment opens and they're speaking Spanish, I knew it was her segment instantly. She she does that a lot. Uh, so, yeah, there you go, folks. That's VHS 85. Better than 99, but definitely not uh, an elite entry in this franchise. Venom, did, did she do a segment for Satanic Hispanics, too? She, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's been pushing that movie way more than VHS. Like, in the months leading up to... Yeah, uh I wasn't sure what she did for it. I knew she, like, was a part of it somehow. I just wasn't sure she wrote and directed something. I I, I guess that movie is a little bit closer to her heart because, like I said, in the months leading up to that movie's release, she was talking about it on social media so much more. Whereas with VHS... I really only noticed her start talking about it last week. Like, as of last week, I didn't even know she had a segment in this movie. Um, And then once, you know, it was released and I saw the list of directors, I'm like, oh, okay. And then then I started to see her posting about it online and thanking her crew and her cast and everything else for the great segment, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I'm still a fan for whatever it's worth. Yeah, uh, but just to wrap it up, I, I agree. I found VHS 85 enjoyable, but I'll just reiterate, I just felt like its highs didn't reach the highs of a couple previous entries, meaning that there was no, to me, there wasn't like a standout segment that was just so great that I'm going to be talking about it like well past the life of this movie. Like the way I do certain entries, you know, we're like four entries past some of the VHSs, and I, I still like think of those constantly. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the VHS franchise is going to have a hard time topping Safe Haven and uh, the subject. And I mean, to this day, the subject is still my favorite segment of a horror anthology ever. I, 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 I've actually watched that over the last year or two. I've actually watched just that segment. I don't even watch the entire movie. Not to say that the rest of VHS 94 isn't good. There's some, I mean, I love Ratma. I, I like the funeral home segment, blah, blah, blah. But the subject, that movie just checks off so many boxes for me that, I can't imagine a horror anthology segment ever topping that. I want to see it happen. Don't get me wrong. I would love to see it happen. Hell, it might be Timu someday. You know, maybe he'll come back to the franchise and do, you know, something that's just going to completely melt my brain. And that's what we're hoping for. But, you know, uh, it, it definitely looks like this franchise needs more Timo. So hopefully he'll come back for the next uh, entry. 
I would highly endorse him returning to the franchise. <laughs> Indeed. I want to see the subject too. I want to see the sequel. <laughs> so good. Uh, all right. Well, that's going to wrap up our discussion. HSA 85, but let's find out where else people can hear us. So, Venom, what do you got? Uh, not too much new for me. Um, obviously, we've done two episodes of Fresh Cuts this week, so a, a little double duty this week, which I never mind doing. I love talking horror. Uh, the main show, episode, what are we up to, 56 on the main show? Yeah, next what, episode yeah. will be 57. There we go. So episode 56 just uh, released. Those are my picks where we looked at a pair of Ryuhei Kitamura films. We looked at 2000's Versus and 2003's Origami. And uh, a latest episode of Creature Comforts is still episode 17, where we look at 20 million miles to Earth. Um, not likely going to see another episode of that one in October just because of all of our responsibilities in October. So hopefully in early November we'll see the next episode of Creature Comforts. And then I did a couple of guest spots on the Cinema Beef uh, family of podcasts. I was actually on one of the sidecasts, which is called Burnt Ends. And on those two episodes, we looked at a couple of surf movies. Uh, Gary wanted to buck the trend of watching horror in October and decided to watch surf movies this month. So I was lucky enough to join him for two episodes. On one episode, we looked at Troma's Surf Nazis Must Die, a movie that I absolutely love. Spoiler alert. And then on the second episode, we look at Surf 2, the end of the trilogy, which is, of course, a gag title. This is not a second part. There is no Surf 1. And, of course, there is no trilogy. It was just uh, the gag title. That, of course, stars Eddie Deason, everybody's favorite nerd, and um, is a very, very weird, and when I say weird, I mean weird with all capital letters, weird zombie movie. It is a surf zombie movie. I'm going to leave it at that if you've never seen it. It is available on YouTube. I would strongly recommend checking it out. It's one of those cheesy 80s classics that's fun with a bunch of people. You know, don't critique it too hard. Don't go into it expecting, you know, some kind of masterpiece. It's definitely, uh, you know, get together with some friends and some beers and just have fun making fun of these terrible zombies. Uh, so, yeah, those are the, my two guest spots later this week. Oh, actually, it's been postponed again. So um, later this month, uh, we'll be recording my appearance on Cut to the Chase, Unfortunately, Cuts of the Chase had a little bit of a tragedy in their family, so they're postponing some of their episodes. So my episode may not actually come out until November, but as a reminder, I will be looking at Tales from the Crypt presents uh, Bordello of Blood, which will actually be a first-time watch for me. Go figure. And that's from coming that's coming from someone who loves Demon Knight. I love Demon Knight. It's, it's one of those guilty pleasure movies for me. I'll never say it's a good movie, but I absolutely fucking love it. And part of the reason is the nostalgia factor. This movie was Mrs. Venom and I's first date. Oh, back in, uh, yeah, back in late 95. Um, I, I worked up the courage to ask out this beautiful blonde that was way out of my league. And somehow she said yes. And we went to see Demon Knight in theaters. And even though, like I said, it's not a stellar film, it will forever hold a major place in my heart. 
So I'm kind of surprised. The whole point is that I'm kind of surprised I've never sat down to watch Bordello of Blood, which is the second movie. So I'll be watching that finally for my Cut to the Chase appearance later this month. And that's it for me, folks. I like Demon Knight, too. I haven't seen it in a long time, so maybe I don't know what I'd think of rewatching it after all these years, but I remember liking it. I actually watched it last week for the first time in over 10 years, and I still really love it. Like, aside from the nostalgia, you know, for the first date and everything, I like I still enjoy the movie. I, I, I think Dick Miller is great. Uh, even Jada Pinkett, who I'm not a fan of, I thought does a great job. Uh, it, it's got a pretty good cast. Um, with that guy from Wings, the goofball from Wings is in that. Uh, just, yeah, a pretty decent cast. And, of course, you know, you get the Crypt Keeper at the beginning and the end, so it's like a long episode. But, yeah, like I said, I'm never going to say it's a 10 out of 10, but it holds a special place in my heart, so I hold it in high regard. <laughs> All right. How about you, Don? Uh, well, since nobody asked, it's uh, Demon Knight is one of my uh, top 10 of the 90s. So nice. I'm... <laughs> yeah, since nobody asked. But um, aside from that, uh, I, I don't have much just because, uh, like Venom, I'm stuck in a holding pattern with Cut to the Chase due to, um, for you know, regrettably I understand why, but it's just unfortunate that, uh, you know, we're in the situation that we are. Um, but, yeah, other than that, uh, season two of Horror Countdown. So that's pretty much it for me. All right, and as mentioned at the top of the show, because there's double releases, there's a chance maybe people don't realize when Evil Lurks if, or when Evil Lurks review is, is up. If you're listening to this, yeah, it's already released as well, so you got a second episode to listen to, whether that's this one or that one. And uh, as far as what's coming down the road, uh, there'll be another episode of Fresh Cuts in about a week. And then we'll also be recording our Halloween commentary special uh, in about, what, a week from this weekend. Uh, no, actually, this no, weekend. A week from <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> yeah, my, October is flying by, so it's, it like, yeah, it's already coming up. <laughs> so, I couldn't believe yeah. it was the 16th when I looked at the calendar today. I'm like, October is half over? I blinked, and half of October is gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so, yeah, with that said... We will uh, be back in about a week with an episode. Until then, thank you, everybody, for listening. Well, let's say bye to our listeners. Later. If you're in a dangerous situation, just drop the fucking camera. Stop with this whole posterity shit and keeping it for history. Drop the fucking camera and <laughs> run away from the demon or the vampire or the werewolf or whatever the fuck is chasing you. Uh, I'm so sick of people holding on to their cameras in found footage movies. <laughs> <laughs> Peace.